Uh, Heavenly Father, as we get into this last week of school uh, before fall break, give us all the energy that we need to finish this quarter strong. Uh, And as these students are memorizing Bible verses and potentially doing this extra credit over the Beatitudes and Lord's Prayer, as many of them are working on memorizing the Apostles' Creed, give them sharp memories. Uh, These truths are important, and so I pray that as they put in effort to value uh, these words, that you would... Uh, bless them and that you would encourage them and that you would help them to hide these things away in their heart so that as they go through life over the next decades, um, the words that they've memorized from your holy word would come back to them and would encourage them and equip them for every good work. Uh, Holy Spirit, thank you that part of your ministry is bringing back the things that we've received and heard and reminding us of the truths of the gospel. We pray now that as we look into the Gospel of Luke, you would help us, that you would encourage us, that you would equip us. For it's in the name of Christ we ask and pray. Amen. So, uh, the Gospel of Luke is written to whom? Theophilus. Um, And whether Theophilus is a single person or an entire church community, what do we know about Theophilus just based on the fact that he can get Luke to write this Gospel for him? Yeah, he's got a lot of money. And so Luke's gospel is written to a wealthy person or a wealthy community and very intentionally focuses on the poor. Uh, It's tempting for those who are talented and skilled to maybe look down on those who lack talents and skills. It's, It's tempting for those who are rich to look down on those who are poor. But over and over again in, in the Gospel of Luke, those who you would think are the unimpressive or the unworthy are those who kind of show others up. There's a really good example of this that we've looked at with the leper and with Peter, where, where Peter gets a glimpse of Jesus' holiness and says, ah, get away from me. But the leper sees something different about Jesus. He sees something of Jesus' holiness, and it draws him toward Christ. There's another example of it. In the opening chapters of Luke's gospel, uh, in Luke chapter 1, an angel appears to two people. Do you know who the angel appears to? The, The first angel appears to Mary, the mother of Jesus. What do you know about Mary? How old is she? Yeah, that's maybe a little on the low side. She's, she's probably a teenager. She's young, all right? Um, the second person who has an angelic appearance is later in chapter 1, and it's Zachariah. Who is Zachariah? Yeah, um, who, do, who do we associate with Zachariah? Who is Zachariah's kid? John the Baptist, what is Zachariah's job? Yeah, he's a priest. So, here's a question for you. You walk into a church community, and priest is kind of like a pastor. You've got your seasoned pastor, who's been in ministry for 20 years. And you've got a 15-year-old girl. Which one would you expect to be the picture of godliness and be the one that you should learn from. The pastor of 20 years or the 15-year-old girl? The pastor who has pastored longer than that girl has been alive 
or a teenager that has walked with Jesus, you know, a little bit. Knowing the Bible, the 15-year-old girl. <laughs> Knowing. <laughs> in the Gospel of Luke, it's the 15-year-old girl. Because Mary shows Zachariah up. But is that what you would have expected? Probably not. Probably not if you're living in that. No. Um... Mary has the angel appear to her, and the angel says that she's going to bear the Son of God, and she says, Behold, I am the handservant of the Lord, be it done as you say. The angel appears to Zechariah, and <laughs> is that Zechariah's response? Mm. <laughs> uh, what is Zechariah's response? Yeah, I'm an old man and my wife's old too. I'm not sure that can actually happen. Um, can you give me a miracle that you're actually telling the truth? Does Mary ask for anything like that? Kind of putting God to the test a little bit. Can you, can you give some sign, some miracle that this is actually true? And the miracle, uh, the angel does answer that, by the way. John, uh, John's dad, Zachariah, says, can you give me some miracle that this will actually happen? And the angel says, yeah, I can. What is the, the sign that the angel gives him? Makes him mute. Makes him mute. <laughs> You're not going to be able to talk till it happens. You're going to have to keep your mouth shut from now on. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? By the way, Something super, super interesting happening in that text. Where is Zechariah when the angel appears to him? Yeah, he's in the temple. The way that this is working is it's a time of community prayer. And so all of the people of God are standing outside of the temple, or at least a gathering of the people of God are standing outside the temple. And whenever Zechariah goes in, he's going into the holy place, not into the most holy place. And he's burning the incense on the altar. So, whenever you burn incense in the altar, what do you see come up out of the fire? Smoke. smoke. So, whenever the incense rises, whenever the smoke rises, it's supposed to be a symbol for the people of God standing outside, that in the same way that, our, that the smoke is rising up to the sky, our prayers are rising up to heaven. It's a symbol of, of how their prayers are, are going up to God. And so, Zechariah is in the temple. He starts burning the incense. The angel appears to him. And, and this conversation happens. God's people are praying outside. And whenever Zechariah finishes offering the, this incense offering, Zechariah is supposed to go out to the people who have been gathered in silent prayer. They do it for about 30 minutes. And he's supposed to raise his hands over them. And he's supposed to give a blessing that was given to Aaron in Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. It was a way that the people could know that God had heard their prayer request, that God was with them, and that God's blessing was resting upon them. Zechariah goes into the temple. He's offering this incense at the altar for about half an hour. He has this conversation with an angel where he shows unbelief. The angel strikes him mute. And then Zechariah walks out. And what can he not do? Speak. He can't speak, so he can't bless the people. Can you imagine that? This is the pattern that you followed your entire life. You pray as the incense is rising and then the priest comes out and pronounces God's blessing on you. You've prayed and the Lord has heard and the Lord has blessed. And, and now the priest comes out and he doesn't do that. 
What would that imply? God didn't hear you. Yeah. Did God not hear us? Is God's blessing not upon us? Something troubling has happened. So, at the very end of Luke's gospel, in chapter 22, or sorry, chapter 24, we read something interesting. Um, somebody read Luke 24, verse 50. And he lived about as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. But Who's that talking about? Who is the he in that text? Jesus. So at the very end of the gospel, Jesus has been resurrected. He's been with his disciples for 40 days, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And the very last thing he does is he lifts his hand over them, and he blesses them. Ever since the beginning of Luke, we've been looking for this blessing. Zechariah comes out, he can't bless the people. But who can? Who can assure them God is with them? Who can assure them that God's blessing and his peace is upon them and that God's face is shining upon them? Christ can. Uh, I heard someone preach on this once, and the title of the sermon is, You're Fired and That's Good News. Zechariah and the Levitical priest have been replaced. They're not the ones that are offering the sacrifice anymore. They're not the ones offering the blessing anymore. Now Christ himself is. A better priest has come. And what Zechariah couldn't do at the beginning of the gospel is offer the people the peace of God. But that's exactly what Christ can offer them at the end of the gospel. So, <clears throat> that's a very important point for understanding Luke, by the way. Um, this is book ending. The, the Gospel of Luke. Questions on that? So, do any of your pastors at the end of the service get up and lift their hands and give that blessing? Have you ever heard that before from number six? How many of your pastors do that? Some of them do. Do any of your pastors give a different blessing at the end of the service? Or do they just pray to end it? Um, in my denomination, we almost always do that. There's other blessings found in the, in the New Testament. St. Paul has several of them. Jude has one. Uh, they'll end the, the book by talking about, may the, may the blessing of God go with you, may God give you peace, something like that. And usually in, in my denomination, uh, the pastor will end the service after the sermon and after all the singing and after taking the Lord's Supper and all these things, lift his hands and will give that, that blessing. One of the things, if you're in a tradition that does that, um, where the pastor lifts his hands and does that, you need to see past that. It's a picture of what Christ did for his disciples. Whenever your pastor lifts his hands and says, may the Lord bless and keep you, may he make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace, or, or a blessing like that, you need to recognize that the pastor is doing that in the name of Christ. The, the pastor is doing that because if Christ was standing before your congregation, he would be giving you the blessing and offering you God's peace. There's something that is supposed to be unseen in that. You're supposed to look past it uh, and, and, and not see just the pastor there, but see Christ doing that for you, offering you that peace and that blessing. Um, the Gospel of Luke is also interesting because in the first chapters, Luke gives us something that none of the other Gospels give us. What does it give us in the first couple chapters? It gives us stories about Jesus when he was, 
was little when he was a boy. He gives us a very, very long birth account, longer than, than even Matthew does. But then it tells us stories about Christ when he was young. Um, anybody ever wondered about that, by the way? What was Jesus like as an 8-year-old, 14-year-old? Luke only gives us one story. He gives us a story of, of Jesus uh, whenever he was 12 years old and his family had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, which they are supposed to go to every single year. And as we get into John, we'll see that Jesus went there frequently uh, throughout his earthly ministry. He, he went every year. Um, and whenever um, Mary and Joseph and their extended family start heading back to Nazareth, they make it a little ways. And then what do they realize? We forgot Jesus back in Jerusalem. You know, imagine Mary in that moment. God literally sent an angel to her. You're going to be the one entrusted with bearing and then raising the son of God. And she says, all right, I'll do it. I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. Let his will be done. And then he's 12 and she starts heading back to Nazareth. And what does she realize all of a sudden? Oh, no. I'm like God's son in Jerusalem, right? Uh, So... You imagine that they hightail it back over there. And where is Jesus? What does he call the temple? His father's house. Yeah, he says, why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It's the most natural place for him to be, his father's house. And so um, while he's been there, he's been having conversation with all of these religious leaders. And what has happened? He started to teach them stuff. Yeah, he started to teach them stuff. it says, um, it says in verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, whenever we read that he was asking them questions, we have to recognize that in the ancient world, the way that you teach somebody is not by getting in front of them and lecturing. The way that you would teach is by sitting up here and asking questions that guide the person so that the person finds the answer themselves. You guys ever heard of like the Socratic method? Right. Um, You know, maybe we should do that one day. Maybe uh, we should start on a point of theology and I should sit here and I should just ask questions. And then someone raises a point and then I play devil's advocate a little bit and ask them another question, and another one. Whenever it says Jesus was asking questions, we have to put ourselves back in the ancient world, and we have to recognize that that doesn't mean they're up teaching, and he's saying, I'm confused, what does that mean? Instead, what that means is he's listening to them talk about different points of theology, and then he's raising questions that they've not thought about before. So, He is taking, as a 12-year-old, the position of a teacher. Now, whenever um, Mary and Joseph finally find him, in verse 50, it says, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And in verse 51, a very interesting text, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Or obedient to them. Good. That is rather interesting to read, isn't it? We've mentioned before, every Sabbath, where do we find Jesus throughout the Gospels? Where do we find him every Sabbath? Temple. Mm, not temple, that's all the way in Jerusalem. He'll be there during the feast, but where is he? What, what are the local things called? 
synagogues. synagogues. Every week on the Sabbath, he's in the synagogue listening to the word of God be read and listening to someone teach it. You think Jesus ever heard a bad sermon? Most definitely. You think he ever heard one and thought, hmm, I could have done that better. But every single Sabbath, he's gathering with God's people to hear the word of God, to pray together, to worship together. That's what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. That's where we find Jesus. So if it was important for Jesus to gather with God's people, to sing, to pray, to read God's word, to hear it preached, if it was important to Jesus to do that, who else should it be important to? To us. Don't neglect to meet together, says Hebrews 10. Or the paraphrase that I would give, go to church, right? He was submissive to those teachers and, and the leaders of the synagogue. Now, he would challenge them later on in his life whenever it was time for him to take the position of a teacher. He would challenge them. But we see that he was there, even through the, the bad sermons. We also see that he was obedient and submissive to his parents. Do you think that there was ever a point in Jesus' life growing up where Mary and Joseph told him to do something, and, jo- and Jesus had the thought pop in his head, I know better than them. Probably. This means yes, right? Jesus is the eternal son of God. There are definitely moments where Jesus rightly thinks, I know better than you. But the text says that he was submissive to them. He was obedient to them. Now, if Joseph and Mary were about to lead him into sin, would he do it? No. No. But if they they told him to take out the trash, he'd do it, right? Even if the advice that they gave him was not always what he thought was 100% best, and I'm sure that there were moments like that because, you know, I mean, he's omniscient according to his divinity. Um, you know, there, there are moments where certainly he knows better than them, but the text says he was willing to be obedient and submissive to them. Jesus wasn't only submissive to his heavenly father, but he humbled himself to the point of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of honoring his father and mother and obeying the fifth commandment. You guys know the Ten Commandments, right? Honor thy father and thy mother. How perfectly did Jesus obey that one? Yeah, perfectly. Um, In fact, whenever Jesus is on the cross, whenever we get to um, the Gospel of John, we'll look at the different sayings that Jesus had on the cross. We've already mentioned a few of them where, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And into your hands I commit my spirit. We've talked about those already. One of the sayings that Jesus has on the cross, whenever uh, we get to the Gospel of John, is at the foot of the cross, as he's hanging there suffering, his mother Mary is there along with the disciple John. And one of the things that Jesus says from the cross is he looks at the two of them and he says, Mary, behold your son, talking about John. And then he looks at John and says, John, behold your mother. What is he saying in that moment? Take care of each other? Yeah. Um... Mary has a 30-year-old son uh, by the time this, the crucifixion takes place, right? Um, 
women usually get out of the house and work in the in, in biblical times. Is that is that the way that the culture really not really? All right. So he's basically making sure in that moment that John is going to do what with his widowed mom? Take care of her. So on the cross, one of the things that Jesus does is go ahead. Uh, is he he honors his father and his mother. Even in the moments of, of his greatest agony and his greatest suffering, he honors his mom and he makes sure she's going to be cared for after his death and after he ascends into heaven. He honors his father and mother perfectly. All right. We, questions on, on any of that stuff? Yes. Uh, he was marrying Joseph, right? So, okay. Where was Joseph during that time? So Joseph... Um, just kind of falls out of the picture uh, of, of the Gospels after the birth of Jesus, which has implied to most people that he dies. Um, we know that um, they refer to, to Jesus as the carpenter's son, so Joseph's profession was carpentry. And it seems like, from a few details in the Gospel, that Jesus was around Joseph enough to pick up that skill from him. But once Jesus' earthly ministry starts, Mary gets mentioned multiple times, but Joseph never does which seems like he, he's probably died by that point. Um, church tradition, which um, could be true, um, usually states that Joseph was much older than Mary. Um, in, in fact, a lot of church tradition tries to make the argument that Joseph was married previously before, before Mary, and that's where Jesus' brothers and sisters come from. Uh, if, you're, if you're really committed to the... Um, uh, to the perpetual virginity of, of, of Mary, that she remained a virgin throughout her life. That's usually the way you make that argument. Um, a lot of Protestants don't like that view. I think, having looked at it a little bit, there's probably a, at least a bit of merit to it. Um, so I think the idea that Joseph is older than Mary and is probably dead by the time Jesus's ministry starts, at least that part, I'm pretty comfortable with. So um, it is very interesting. At one point, Mary and Jesus's family members, uh, it says brothers and sisters. Those, you guys know that those words can be fluid in scripture, though. So like brothers and sisters can mean blood relative, brother and sister. It can also refer to cousins as well. Like um, the nations of Israel and Edom are brother nations, but technically they would be cousins of each other. So um, there, there is a part where... Um, Jesus's family thinks he's going crazy in Matthew 13 and it says behold your mother brothers and sisters are here doesn't mention father which I think would be really odd if Joseph is still alive surely he would have been involved in that so um any other questions on anything related to that you guys know that there are some fake gospels right you ever heard of the Gnostic gospels um yeah, Gnostic Gospels um, are not included in the Bible for good reason. They are written by a heretical group called the Gnostics, which taught that the Old Testament God is actually Satan, and the New Testament God has come to do war with him. So Old Testament bad, New Testament good. Um, we'll get into that a little bit more later, because a lot of the New Testament is written against this group that's called the Gnostics. Um, a lot of Paul's letters are. First John most definitely is. I think the Gospels are, to some extent, written against this group. Um, the Gnostic Gospels, though, um, 
let me explain this really quickly. Um, they're plagiarized. So the way plagiarism works today would be like if Sophia wrote something and I read it and said, hmm, that's really good. So I erase her name and I put my name instead. I take her work and put my name on it, plagiarism today. In the ancient world, plagiarism worked backwards. Plagiarism in the ancient world worked this way, where I have ideas that I want to popularize, but nobody cares who I am. So I take the name of a famous person, and I put that person's name on the work, and I write as if I am that person. I kind of steal their fame and notoriety. The Gnostic Gospels uh, bear the names of some of the 12 disciples. Gospel of Thomas. The one that I've never understood why anyone would read it. Gospel of Judas. Why? What? Why? Why would anyone care to read that? Um, but um, the, the Gnostic Gospels uh, are very bothered by the fact that the four, the four Gospels that are in the Bible give so little detail about the early life of Jesus. So, one of the Gnostic Gospels is called the Gospel of Thomas. It's weird. The weirder one is the precursor to that, which is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Um, if, if, by the way, you ever wonder, hmm, why are these not included in the Bible? Because some people will try to make these weird arguments like, oh, the Christians don't want you to know about these books. That's why they didn't include them in the Bible. Um, if you are ever, um, there's a lady named Elaine Pagel, I think, that has worked a lot in the Gnostic Gospels and uh, tries to kind of throw doubt on the Christian faith by lens of these. If you ever wonder why were these not included in the Bible, you know what you should do. Read, read one and say Read why. one. And then it will become very obvious to you why these were not included in the Bible. According to the Gospel of Thomas, women cannot be saved. They first have to die and then their souls will be transferred into men's souls and then they can be saved. So there's like a weird transgenderism thing in the Gospel of Thomas that happens. Female souls, according to the gospel, you're going to be totally lost on this, and I'm so sorry. All right. Um, according to, this is a very bad book. All right. That's what you need to know. According to the gospel of Thomas, um, women's souls have to be transformed into male souls before they can go into heaven because women can't be saved. Um, according to the gospel of Thomas as well, there's this very cryptic statement that says, um, if a man eats a lion, he will become a lion, but if a lion eats a man, it will not become a man. What? Not really sure what that means. Uh, sometimes the Gospel of Thomas will quote a saying of Jesus that's found in the New Testament. Uh, it will do that occasionally, but then there's just all of this really weird stuff that's mixed in that doesn't make any sense. The infancy Gospel of Thomas is fun to read. It's wrong, it's not good, but it's fun. The Infancy Gospel of Thomas, as I said, is very bothered by the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, do not give many details about Jesus' early childhood. And so it says, let's fill in the gaps. Oh, no. <laughs> um, in the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, the best story... Well, there's one story where a bird dies, and then Jesus gets sad, and he makes it come back to life, and then his family's like, whoa... That's crazy. Um, the best story in the infancy gospel of Thomas is when Jesus 
uh, Mary and Joseph hire a tutor to teach Jesus Greek. Oh, no. Because they've been trying, and in the infancy gospel of Thomas, Jesus is a brat. All right? So they hire a tutor to try to teach him Greek, and the very well-meaning tutor sits down with Jesus and is trying to teach him his Greek alphabet and says, Alpha, Beta, to which Jesus responds. He looks at him and says, You tell me the Alpha, and I'll tell you the Beta. What does that mean? I don't know. But the, 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 poor, tutor, the poor tutor is like, okay, let's start again. Alpha, beta. And Jesus gets mad and reaches out his hand and strikes the guy dead. And then Mary and Joseph come in and are like, dude, come on. And, and then it says in the infancy of gospel, and no one else would teach him because all were afraid. Well, I would. Yes. Yeah. According to the Gnostics, um, this group, by the way, um, they taught a, a doctrine called docetism, which is derived from the um, Greek verb to see. And docetism is the belief that Jesus was not human, but looked or appeared human. There's another gospel uh, or another Gnostic document called the Apocalypse of Peter. The Apocalypse of Peter um, really dips into this, which, which all of these documents do. Jesus was not actually fully human. He just looked human, uh, but he was, he was not human. Uh, the Apocalypse of Peter is the best way to explain this. So in the Apocalypse of Peter... Um, uh, kind of this spiritual version of Jesus is showing Peter around and they get to the part of Jesus's life where he dies on the cross and uh, Jesus points to the cross and Peter looks and he sees a man suffering there and on top of the cross is a little like kind of spirit baby that is laughing and Peter says what is that and Jesus says um that which is laughing is me. That which is dying is the brute. Basically, the idea of Gnosticism is Jesus was not human. He looked human. What that means is, in the same way in the Gospels that we've seen demons possess people, Jesus did that to a human body. He did that to a human being. Oh. And so whenever the cross happened, um, Jesus himself left the person and the person that died was not really Jesus. It was the human being that he had possessed. So, according to this, Jesus was never actually fully human. So, did he actually die on the cross? No. no. So, that also raises an interesting question. The, the big point of Christian doctrine is that he not only died on the cross, but he also what? Resurrected. Resurrected. Well, if he didn't die on the cross, um, you wonder to yourself, what is this resurrection story going to look like? And boy, is it a trip. Peter uh, is led to the tomb on Easter morning by the spirit Jesus. And the, the, the rock rolls back. And surely Peter in this story is thinking, what on earth am I about to see? And he sees a walking, talking, singing cross come out of the tomb. What? And, kind of what? Around, and then it ascends into heaven. And so, um, what? was this actually written by Peter? Hopefully no. no. It was written by some Gnostic dude on LSD, yeah. and, and then he slapped Peter's name on it. Um, 
So again, um, the resurrection story so much better. Really, Greg, it would have made it better. Um, so, so. Um, so um, if uh, if you ever get nervous, you know uh, why were these other books not included in scripture? Uh, again, um, do what I did whenever I got nervous over it and sit down with them and read them, and then you will say, "I understand." Right? Um, so uh, we'll talk about Gnosticism a little bit later on. Uh, really next semester we're you're going to get very tired of hearing me say the word Gnostic next semester because a large chunk honestly I could probably make a persuasive case that every book in the New Testament to one degree or another is written against this group I'm just choosing not to do that with the Gospels but whenever we get into Paul's letters we'll have to deal with that um but all of the Gospels maintain that Jesus really is God in the flesh. So all of them are written against this ideology, which is held by this group. And so all of the New Testament is written to one degree or another to push back against what is a very, very prevalent heresy of, of Gnosticism. Yes? Which book has the bunny story? Bunny story? Epistle of Barnabas. Um, the Epistle of Barnabas uh, is a letter that was attributed to Barnabas, Paul's traveling companion. And very briefly, the Christian community considered it uh, for canonization into the Bible. And if you want to know why the Epistle of, of Barnabas was not included, uh, you should read it. And there's going to be a point where that book begins to talk about rabbits and you really just shouldn't go there don't read it um, but you will understand if you do why that was not included I'm not going to tell you what that one is because some of the other students in higher grades coerced me one time into telling them why I almost had them read it for church history and then I figured out you know these kids are still teenagers that's probably inappropriate. Um, the Epistle of Barnabas has this very, very, very odd idea. So if you're really curious, you'll have to probably read the whole thing to figure out what it is. But if you're really curious, you know, knock yourself out. Um, yeah, the letter of Barnabas. It's not actually by Barnabas. People thought it was maybe for a little bit. Um, so, um, tomorrow, tomorrow we're going to talk in some detail about Jesus's transfiguration, and then on Wednesday and Thursday <clears throat> we will talk about his two Jerusalem ministry, and we'll go over a number of parables that he gives along the way. And remember, <coughs> remember Luke alone gives us most of the details about Jesus's to Jerusalem ministry. And so if we really want to know the distinctive purpose for which Luke was written, that is the portion of the gospel we need to look at. Memory verse will be due on your test on Friday. Uh, John 4 through 6, you can read it tonight, you can read it tomorrow. I don't really mind when, 
You can take as many notes on it as you want, and it will probably have a quiz on Thursday for it. Um, so, and then you have those two extra credit assignments that you can be working on as well, if you want. If you don't, then you just don't get extra credit. You guys have any questions? Not about Barnabas, about other things. Yes? So, actually, this is a question about the hospital.